0: prayer at this time our father in heaven we come to you today lord we're so thankful for your grace and mercy Uh, father we owe everything to you and lord may we be aware of that may we be aware of your providence and your sovereignty in our lives and uh, how good you are on a daily basis father as uh, the psalmist wrote and said that uh, your benefits are daily loaded upon us father and may we never forget that may we live in a uh, constant awareness uh, father with thankfulness and gratitude unto you and faithfulness to you Lord, it's my prayer that you bless our time now in the Word as we gather around it, that you would speak and minister to our hearts, and may we be edified and encouraged and challenged, Lord, in our own Christian life and uh, and our church as well. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's go to Romans chapter 12, Romans 12. I'm going to read verse 1 and 2 as our text for today, and this is going to be our uh, last message in this series that I uh, began a while back on uh, pillars of a biblical church, and Uh, The focus of this series has been a study of the five solas of the Reformation and uh, why they are important, what they are, and uh, so I want to do somewhat of a concluding message for this and uh, entitled it The Impact of the Five Solas, The Impact of the Five Solas. What is the impact that these doctrinal principles uh, have on our Christian life and on the church together? And uh, so I pray it would be a good conclusion for us just to kind of see some applicational points here uh, tonight. So notice that Paul's writing in Romans and he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. As we began this series, we we started with a couple of messages opening on uh, why Reformation was needed in many churches today, and uh, we looked at um, some of the patterns of the world and the dangers to the truth that have been infiltrating churches today. Many of them come uh, under the guise of being safe and good and why not, and Uh, It appears Christian, right? But many of them compromise the gospel and open the door for uh, error, even in function of the church. Uh, We went over things like pragmatism and relativism and humanism, materialism. I know all these isms, We, we gave you these definitions of how these work together in earlier messages, so I'll not rehash all of that, but how these things infiltrate Christian circles. And it's important for us to understand that the church is always going to face various kinds of battles and subtle infiltrations, right? These are the things that we're up against uh, in our culture, in our world. And how is it that we can make sure that we stay on the right path, have a firm foundation, and keep a pure gospel? And I believe the five solas, these principal doctrines, are key to doing that. Now, we know what these solas are. We've gone over them. They include scripture alone. Uh, Latin term is sola scriptura. Sola scriptura. Christ alone, which is solus Christus, grace alone, which is sola gratia, faith alone, which is sola fide, and glory to God alone, which is soli deo gloria. And I believe that these five doctrinal principles are key convictions that hold us where we should be. Now, understand that these truths, they're not just opinions that some Christians have, but they are doctrinal convictions found in the Word of God. These aren't things that were just, you know, made up at the Reformation era. They've been in the Word of God ever since it's been written. Uh, So I'm thankful that they've been articulated into this fashion. We can easily remember what they are. But I've always held to this, that people hold opinions, but convictions hold people. Now, a conviction is something that grips you. Conviction is something that holds you. And uh, we find convictions in the Word of God alone. Uh, so that's important for us to recognize. And as these convictions hold us, they impact us both in our Christian life and in our church life. And I believe that all doctrines should impact us in some way. In fact, in fact, doctrine without application, it's empty. What good is it? What good is it if it doesn't affect our life? If we claim to hold to these doctrinal principles, but they do nothing in regard to our Christianity, or what good are those doctrines? Vance Havner said this, and I think I put this quote in your your notes. He said, you can be straight as a gun barrel doctrinally, but empty as a gun barrel spiritually. And that's exactly true. You see that even today, that there are a lot of people that they have the doctrine right, but it doesn't affect them, that you can't see it in their life. Their lives aren't changed by it. So there's a difference between intellect and knowing something and being moved and changed by something. And so these truths influence how we believe, how we think, and what we do. They are to have an impact on who we are in our Christianity and how we live and uh, what we stand upon. You know, I have a a coffee mug in my office, and it has the sixth Sola on it, and it has a great impact on me every day. Okay, the sixth Sola is Sola Caffeum. You know what that is? Caffeine alone. (laughs) Caffeine alone. In other words, give me my coffee, right? (laughs) Uh, so, when I oftentimes, I'll, I'll drink from that mug, and it kind of reminded me of how that impacts me on a day-to-day basis, this sola cafeum. Uh But when we look at the solas here, our text uh, shows us it flows from the doxology that we looked at in the last message, soli dea gloria, we looked at Romans 11. And this is one reason I chose this text, because Romans 12 dives into the application, but it flows directly from theology and the doxology that Paul just gave. And so we opened by looking at what it means to be conformed to the world in a negative effect. That's what the first two messages were about in the series. But now I just want to close this series by looking at this being transformed by the renewing of your mind and that's effect by understanding these doctrines and how they impact us. So three areas that I want to show us that these solas, these doctrinal principles, they impact us in our Christianity and in our church. Number one is this, and this is probably the one we'll spend most time on, but they impact our worship of the Lord. They impact our worship of the Lord. And I want to point out two things about this. I believe they impact us in a way of recognizing our approach to worship, our very approach of, to worship, how we look at worship, how we come to worship, what we do in worship they impact our approach to worship. Now, you'll notice in verse 1 of Romans 12 that Paul says that he appeals to them by the mercies of God to present their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. And he calls this, which is your spiritual worship. Now, that word worship translated there, it can also be rendered as service, okay? So some will have service, some will have worship. Um, But what you find with this word is that uh, both of them convey this uh, idea of a spiritual offering, a giving of oneself and your life, uh, and it's on the grounds of his mercy. Notice what Paul says, it's by the mercies of God to give our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. By the mercies of God, this is our spiritual worship. So, what is the first cause of our worship or our service unto the Lord? If I was to ask, what is the reason that we come to worship the Lord, what would the answer be? Now, I've asked this question to many people in the world today and uh, just throughout my ministry, and you get a variety of answers. Some will say, well, it's just because we're supposed to do that. I've heard that a lot. Uh, Some will say, well, it just makes me feel a little bit better about myself that I've gone to church. Uh, some will say, well, I just, I just like the preacher over there. Some will say, well, it's my friends and family. I kind of need to go because of them. Some just will, will use it as, well, I, worship, I go to worship or I go to church just because it helps me keep thinking straight. You know, we, we could hear a number of reasons as to why we go worship. Why is it that we do this? But what does Paul say the basis is for this? What's his reason? What's his foundation? He starts it out there. He says, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, because of the mercy of God, live in this way and worship and serve in this way. And this is what we have to always come back back to. It is the mercies of God, the saving change that God has worked in our life, that brings us to live and worship as we do. Now, what does the, what what solas does this point us to? Well. When we see the mercies of God and how Christ has changed us, all of them apply. But we think of Christ alone, that it's only in him. We think of grace alone, that it's undeserved and unearned by us. We think of faith alone, that, that it's only through faith that we're justified. So these doctrinal truths have changed us for eternity. Now, I want to point this out just by, by recalling what Peter says here concerning the mercies of God in First Peter 1 and verse 3 through 5. Let's read this together, if you would. 1 Peter 1, verse 3 through 5. I love this passage because it kind of gives a just a broad look at what God has done for us in Christ, and it is all according to his great mercy. Now notice, notice what he says in 1 Peter 1 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to what? His great mercy. His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice that Peter gives the foundation to this also. All that we've experienced, all that we know in Christ, he says... According to his great mercy. According to his great mercy. And so we worship because of what God has done for us in his mercy and his grace. But also in our approach to worship, it's also affected by the solas in that we recognize the worthiness of God, of the God we've come to worship. Why is it we come worship him? Why not anybody else? Because only God is worthy of the worship, right? Only him. Only Christ if we have a high view of God, which is what Soli Deo Gloria establishes for us, that he's worked all things, all things to his glory from him, through him, and to him, if we have a high view of God, that impacts our approach in coming to worship this God. You know, in England long ago, before the formation of modern English, the, the word worship would have been said like this, worthship, worthship. Okay? We don't talk like that today, but it would have been pronounced that way. And that word indicates the worth of notable persons. And so, when worshiping God, in this sense, it assigns to God the true worth that is deserved Him when we worship. Revelation 4.11, speaking of Christ, says, Worthy are you, here's the saints in heaven, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So we know this. There's there's no other being worthy of worship and praise but God alone. He's worthy of worship at all times in our life, especially as we gather with the saints, whether we're in the mood to worship or not. You know, we, we hear that today too, that well, I just kind of got to be in the mood to worship. I gotta get in the zone. Well, maybe that's true, that maybe our minds or hearts are disconnected, but uh, really when it comes down to it, we're accountable to get ourselves ready uh, to worship God. Um, I've loved this quote by Vodi Bacham. I've heard him say this several times, and I've, I've pinned it down. He says, our worship is not a response to, G- to how Jesus makes us feel. Our worship is a response to Jesus' worth regardless of how we feel. And so there's often times that, you know, church and worship is put off. It's like, well, I just don't feel like it today. Well, God never makes room for that excuse. He just doesn't. He he demands worship. He desires worship. He deserves worship, okay? So that's why the Lord's Day is so important for us. And so this is what we must understand about worship. And this is a common misunderstanding today in, in Christian circles. The idea is that, well, worship is really about me. Is worship about us? No. Is it even for us? No, not in its first sense, right? Uh, Worship is always about and for God. And this is the reason, this is the reason that we do not cater or adapt our worship to what the world or people might like because it's not for them. I mean, I was hit between the eyes when I realized that worship wasn't for the lost. I thought, aren't we gathering for that? No, that's not the reason we gather. Now, by all means, God does reach the lost as we gather. I'm not negating that. But what I'm saying is that we don't cater to the worship for the lost world around us. We invite them to come and behold the beauty of the one true God as the people of God worship. And they proclaim a gospel that is, is pure and unaltered from the word of the living God. So, so uh, we understand that, that worship is only about God. It is for God. And while worship is not for us, by all means, mark this down too, it does affect us, right? It does affect us. When we meet with the saints and gather to worship the one true God, we should be affected by it. When we gather, we should be convicted we should be edified, we should be challenged, we, we should have a, a nearness to God and awe of Him, of how great He is and how He's, he's revealed Himself through His Word. So, so much is, is here with worship. Our approach to worship is also affected when we understand that we are gathering to meet with the eternal God. When we gather together, we're gathering to meet with Him. And that's a truth that really exceeds our minds, really, that God meets with His people in worship. You know, God is omnipresent, and what's that mean? It means He's in all places at all times, right? He's not bound to one place, and yet at the same time, there is a significance of God's people gathering together in one place to meet with Him. Though you can't see Him, He's here with us right now. Every Sunday that we gather, though you can't see Him, He is here in the person of the Holy Spirit working in and through the hearts of His people, See, it's not that God was not in that place beforehand, since he's omnipresent, but that we've gathered for the specific purpose of communing with him, of being near to him and to his people. In Revelation two one, the Apostle John uh, wrote in Revelation, and this speaks of Christ's presence among his churches, his local assemblies. In Revelation 2.1, 2, it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Those seven golden lampstands, that's that's imagery for the seven churches that he's writing to. But there's a broader principle there. It's that Jesus is among his churches. He meets with his churches. So worship is not a trivial thing like the world and culture around us make it out to be. Worship is a meeting, a sacred meeting with the one true God. Uh, And so every time we meet, that's what we're doing. And if we're meeting with the one true God, we must know the God we're meeting with. And so the solas give us a high view of God, that He is the one true God, that uh, there's no other gods but Him, like our culture wants us to believe. So when we gather with this adoration and praise, we come with a mindset and understanding of who God is. His character, His attributes, uh, His holiness, His grace and mercy and love, His sovereignty, His justice, and His wrath. We worship the one true God in all of who He is, not just part. Psalm 29.2, what a wonderful text this is. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. I love that. So our approach to worship is affected. When we see God as the high and holy God who has bestowed mercy upon us. So we can see how the soul solas affect our approach. But notice also, letter B, our action in worship. Our action in worship. We notice that in our text, Paul communicates uh, actions of worship and service in God's people with sacrificial language. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And truly, worship is sacrificial to a degree. In the Old Testament, it required physical, literal sacrifices, right? As they would come and bring an offering, and that was a a picture of Jesus. Uh, And we we apply that today. We've already got Christ in us. But when we come to worship, we are giving of ourselves, our hearts, our minds to the Lord in adoration and praise to him. Now, here's how Hebrews says it in the realm of singing praise in Hebrews 13, 15 says, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. So sacrificial language there again, with our worship, with our praise. So when the people of God worship, I believe that we need to be giving our best to him. We need to give our all to him. Our hearts and minds, they ought to be engaged in worshiping him. And so we need to ask ourselves, are we gathering when we come to worship on the Lord's Day? Are we gathering with our hearts ready to be offered to Him? Are we gathering with our minds ready to be filled by His Word? Now, anybody else experience this, that usually on Lord's Day morning is when the craziest things happen? I mean, any, anything and everything in the world that can just get you distracted, get you upset, and, uh, you know, you come in with a smile on your face, but it wasn't there ten minutes ago. Uh, that's that's how it goes sometimes. By all means, recognize that the devil and the flesh are going to try to do everything they can to disrupt you for worshiping God as we ought to worship him. So it, worship is a great action that we partake in. John Stott said this, Christians believe that true worship is the highest and noblest activity of which man by the grace of God is capable, and I would have to agree with him. Let's look at another text in John 4 for a moment. John 4, we find Jesus gives some instruction concerning worship, and this will tie into the, 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 the five solas as well, and uh, when it comes to how and why we worship, what governs our worship. But John 14 in verse 19 through 24, this is a, a, a famous account, well-known of Jesus meeting the woman of Samaria at Jacob's well. And I love this whole conversation. It's, it's a wonderful thing to read and study. Um, but notice that Jesus gives some clear insight into the action of worship. And we don't have time to exhaust everything we see here, but I just want to note a few things. John chapter uh, number 4, verse 19, let's begin there. This is in the middle of their interaction. But he says, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are, that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Just a few things I want to point out from that. One is that the Samaritan woman, you know, she's thinking, well, God's only worshiped in Jerusalem, and we should worship here, and all that. God did have a central location under the old covenant to be worshiped, didn't he? Tabernacle and the temple, but before the tabernacle, we find Abraham, Isaac, Jacob they worship wherever they were. They'd build altars, they'd make sacrifices, they would worship the Lord, calling on His name, right? But then comes the tabernacle and the temple, and there's a centralized place of worship. But here's what Jesus says to her He says that no longer is it going to be Jerusalem or, or this place or that place where worship. Why? Because God is a spirit, right? And so what we find is that worship happens anywhere and everywhere God's people are, especially now in a new covenant since we have God dwelling in us, right? Worshiping the Lord should happen daily in our own hearts since he resides in us. Don't think that worship is limited just to when we gather with the church. You ought to be worshiping the Lord daily. You ought to have times of prayer, times when you're taking in his word, times when you just thank him and, and, and rejoice in him. But notice that in connection to this, verse 24, Jesus says that they they that worship him must worship him in spirit. We notice we're to worship him in spirit. What does Jesus mean by this? Well, firstly, it indicates he says God is spirit, and we are to worship him in spirit. That is our innermost being, okay? We are spiritual beings that have a body. You understand that? We're not, we don't, we're not body and then have a spirit. We, we shed off this body, but our spirit remains. We go on. And so speaking of worshiping in spirit means that we're worshiping him with our innermost being. Now, here's the application of this. Many think that as long as they have taken their body to worship, that they have worshiped. Is that true? Can a person be in a worship service but not have truly worshiped? Absolutely. Can a person have done all the things that we do in worship, like singing and praying and giving and listening to God's word, but not have truly worshipped? Absolutely. You see, this is where we see the importance of a person being genuinely engaged in the worship service with their inner being, their heart and soul. In other words, you can be here but not be here. You can Sometimes I can see who's here and who's not here. (laughs) And, hey, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm guilty of doing the same thing, all right? Uh, But this is where we come to a discipline. We have to practice in our own hearts. This connects to our heart and soul being engaged in worship. And we know that there is an application of the Holy Spirit working in us in worship as well. As Paul said in Philippians 3.3, 3, that uh, we, we are those who worship by the Spirit of God. But we see that there's an aspect of actually being engaged in worship. All right, That comes to our approach as well. But here's where we see one of the solas really tie into this. Notice, thirdly, that, that, that Jesus says we are to worship him. In spirit and how else? In truth. In truth. We're to worship him according to truth. And what sola does that bring us to? Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone, right? Scripture alone is to be the guide for our worship of God. It is the scriptures that are true and set us apart unto what is true. Jesus said in John seventeen seventeen, Sanctify them through thy truth. Your word is truth. So, we know that the Word of God is what sanctifies us in our truth individually, but it also is what separates the church in its own operation and practice, sanctifies the church in that manner. So, here's what we learn. Our worship should proclaim and manifest the truth about God, about Christ, about salvation, about sin, about man, about eternity. If we are not worshiping in accordance with truth, we are not truly worshiping. Both of these things are required. True worshipers, Jesus says, worship in spirit and in truth. And many people claim to worship God, but they are not doing so according to truth. Somebody has said this, and I've read it somewhere. I don't know who said it, but it's a true statement. Doxology, which is worship, praise, without theology, which is truth about God, is idolatry. Doxology without theology is idolatry. Because if you're engaging in worship, but it's not attributed in truth to the one true God, you're worshiping something else, right? And this is why we, we have to be be on guard about what we do, right? We, 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 what, we, what we preach, how we pray, what we say, what we sing. You know, there's some songs in the hymn books that don't have truth in them. You ever found a hymn? Brother Ron picks good hymns. Don't take this in the wrong way. He picks great hymns. But I've been in churches where where I've opened up and read the hymn, and I have thought, this has nothing to do with Scripture. I just shut it. I'm thinking, we're singing something that does not have any connection to the gospel, any connection to truth. So I'm thankful we sing good, truthful hymns here. We've got good hymns. But... Understand that we have to pay attention to what is being done in our church. That's why it's so vital that whoever's in the pulpit, me, this is my responsibility, that I'm conveying truth, truth from the word of God, not my opinion, not what the culture says, not what anything else says, but truth. And so, worshiping in truth means that we worship according to what God has said, but also what He has prescribed for our worship. You see, Scripture alone sets the guidelines for worship. When you look at the Old Testament under Israel, in the Old Covenant, God had a specific way for them to worship, and they dare not go away from it, right? They weren't allowed to bring in strange fire. We saw God, how serious He took that. Under the New Covenant, we see how the church is to worship the Lord. We worship through what God has, has prescribed in local church. We worship through preaching, through singing, hymns and spiritual songs, praying, giving, keeping the ordinance of baptism and the Lord's Supper, gathering with the saints on the Lord's Day. All of these are means by which we worship, right? So keeping to Scripture alone guides us in proper worship of the Lord. And this is where we see uh, we have to guard against this today because the Scripture is not the sole authority of faith and practice in many Christian circles. And so anything and everything can come in and be attached to worship in the name of God when God does not, uh, God does not condone those sorts of things. Um, what we find here is that uh, Jesus gives an example of the Pharisees who did this very thing. They added things to God's word and, and did not have their heart engaged. He says in Matthew 15, 7 through 9, he says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said... This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So you see really a spirit and truth application in that one text. Their hearts were disengaged, and they weren't doing it according to truth. Essentially what we find is they were adding to it. But nowadays, not only is it tradition, it's also just things in the culture we bring in. Things in the culture. And Listen to this quote from A.W. Tozer. I think this is good. He said, worship is no longer worship when it reflects the culture around us more than the Christ within us. And that's a great way to put it, great way to put it. So clearly the solas impact our worship, impact our worship. Notice number two, they impact our work in the Lord, <laughs> what we do, right? Worship, but also our service, our work. And I had two things that, that, are, that are central to our work, and I'll come through these quickly. But notice firstly, the way we practice evangelism is affected by what we believe. It pretty much goes without saying that much of today 's evangelism techniques they 're built on pragmatic methods let 's just try anything and everything to get a profession of faith we 'll do whatever we can to get somebody to make a profession of faith and There are good people good Christian people who I think simply just don 't know any better they've been they 've been ingrained in a movement and they just don 't know any better they 're just following what they 've always known but then there 's other who do whatever they can to get as many converts as possible only so they can say how many they've got. It's a self-exaltation when it comes to evangelism. But regardless, understanding the truths of Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, it settles us on how we evangelize. Now, this is going to be a hard question, but what's the best way to evangelize? What's the best way to evangelize? Preach the gospel. Exactly. Preach the gospel. That's it. Preach the gospel. That's the way that you evangelize. No, (laughs) there's not. But that's the problem is that there's a lot of things in this current culture that we've got to add this to the gospel to make it more effective, right? Now, here's the reality. Do I need to add anything to the gospel to make it better? No, I don't. Is the gospel really enough to save the sinner without me coercing or manipulating somebody into making a profession of faith? Do I need to have a worldly appeal for the gospel to work? No. Paul said in Romans 16, he's not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel alone. And when it comes to preaching the gospel... Even though I want every sinner who hears it to repent and believe, is it in my power to make that happen? No, it's not. One of the things that comforted me a lot when I was a young preacher is when I learned this very truth, that the results don't depend on me. I used to think that if I preached a sermon and I didn't have somebody come forward during an invitation, that, man, I must have been a bad sermon. I must have failed or something. And Once you realize how God really works, and that it's not up to us, but he's the one who gives the fruit and the increase. That relieved so much pressure off me that was never there to begin with. It was, it was, it was made up pressure on myself. Isaiah 55, and 11. This is a wonderful passage for this. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You know what that means? You have a guaranteed success that the word of God's going to work. And you may not see how it works. I may never see some of the fruit of my labor, and you may never see some of the fruit of your labor in the word of God, but God has made an unconditional promise that my word accomplishes what I want it to do. It will. All results belong to God alone, and it requires no cunning wit from me to make the gospel work. I was reading in a book earlier this week, John MacArthur said this, and it's on this topic, this line of thought. He said, If I thought someone's eternal destiny hinged on my skill as a preacher, I think I would stay mute. The weight of that kind of responsibility would be unbearable, nor do I wish to get any credit when God uses the preached word to convert a soul. We have a responsibility to tell people, but it's not in our responsibility to make people believe. All the glory goes to God. All the fruit comes from him. So I encourage us as Christians, share the gospel with anyone, everyone you possibly can. And leave the results to him. If they reject it, don't feel bad about them. Don't, don't feel bad about that. Pray for them. Pray for them. If they receive it, glory to God. He used you in that means. So saving sinners is not our duty. We're just to keep the gospel pure and give it as it's given. The same applies to the pulpit here with the gospel, is to preach it plainly without any gimmicks to get decisions from people. Let God be God with his gospel. And when we understand the solas, that gives us a proper foundation for how we evangelize biblically, but also let it be the way we practice discipleship, the way we practice discipleship. While we do our part to evangelize, we're also called to do our part in making disciples. Now, much of today's Christianity, when I mentioned those pragmatic means to get numbers, They want professions and baptisms, and then they're cast to the wolves. Let's get them saved. We'll say the sinner's prayer, and then we'll dunk them. You're on your own. Many of them were never truly converted, but those that really are converted are in great need of help, great need of discipleship. And so the church is called to make sound and strong disciples, people who are grounded in the faith and understand a life of faithfulness to the Lord. And how do we disciple in this way? Well, Jesus said it best in the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he came and said to his disciples, his church, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them. To observe all that I have commanded you, and and behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. You see the picture here? We're not just to make converts, we're to make disciples. Disciples, those who profess faith and are baptized, what comes next for them? We're to teach them. Teach them to observe all things that Christ has commanded. This is what Paul did when he went to the churches. He established churches by teaching them the whole of God's truth, not just part. Acts 20, 26 and 27, when he's leaving Ephesus to depart. We know he worked there for a long time in that church. He says, I testify to you this day, I am innocent from the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The new believer needs to be taught in the whole truth of Scripture alone. And Scripture alone is the foundation for our evangelism and discipleship. It impacts that. Number three tonight. The solos also impact not only our worship, not only our work, but they also impact our walk with the Lord in a personal way, our walk with the Lord. And what do they do? These are two things that have I think they apply to me and I've recognized, but I know they apply to all of us, is they give us an awareness of God's providence in our life, an awareness of God's providence in our life. See, when we truly see God as He is in the Scriptures, in His full scope, how big He is and how small we are, we see God's providence governs our lives from beginning to end. That brings us to consider how God has worked in bringing us from where we are to where we are now, where we were to where we are now. We see God's sovereignty in creating us. He made us uniquely in His image. David said in Psalm 139.14, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. You see, it is our sovereign, providential God who made us and daily gives us life. Today I breathe because he said I could breathe. He's the infinite creator that gives us that sense of providence, how he gives it to us. We, we think of this in the realm of him saving us. Only our sovereign God could save us who planned and fulfilled redemption in Christ alone. Brought it to pass and gave it to us by grace alone. Fulfilled it in faith alone. Both our first and second birth were planned by God alone. This is this is how big he is. That we personally know him today and for all eternity. As Second Timothy 1.10 tells us, you couldn't save yourself as we see from grace alone. It's only by his providence. Thirdly, we consider his sovereignty in how he cultivates us in our life. Whether we have bad days or good days, understanding who God is and that we exist for his glory is the central thread to all of those things. Why? Because whatever he's doing, if he really is providential in our life. Every day, over every detail, it all is being worked for a specific purpose, even if that includes suffering. God's providence reigns over every detail. Romans 8, 28, we know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good, those who are called according to his purpose. So be be aware of God's presence in your life, his providence over your life. I, I mean, consider, remember Joseph, not me, Joseph of the Bible. <laughs> That'd be bad, point attention to myself here, right? I'm nothing, but the, the biblical example of Joseph now that God was working providentially everything for a greater good. But Joseph, he's, he's betrayed by his brothers. He's cast into prison on a false charge. And all that suffering, Joseph had no clue what God was working towards. But yet he was faithful and aware of how big his God was. He was so faithful to God that even in his suffering, he refused to give in to temptation when he could have easily done this. So, so God's sovereignty in all things flows From the solas that we see, these five doctrinal principles, letter B, and lastly, we find an awareness of God's purpose for our life, an awareness of God's purpose for our life. What is God's purpose for our life? Well, it brings us back to where we began, Romans 12, the end of Romans 11, he closes that chapter, that stanza with, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever, amen. What does that mean? That means we exist for the glory of God. We exist for his glory. And if we exist for the glory of God alone, then we must see what glorifies him and how we live our lives to that end. And that's why Paul begins Romans 12, 1 through 2, because this is application for the Christian. We're to be that living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. We are not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We are to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Christian, that is the blueprint for living out your purpose in this world. To express that further, how is it that we can fulfill that mandate? How do we know what is pleasing to God? How do we know how to live our life, that our minds can be transformed? Guess what that brings us back to? Scripture. As we abide in the scriptures alone for our faith and practice, they teach us how to live a holy life, our daily need for repentance and confession, our call to worship and faithfulness, our command to obey and serve. They guide us for every aspect of life, our church, our marriage, our parenting, our work, everything. And when scripture alone is your foundation, all the rest will fall into place. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and what? A light to my path. So these five solas of the Reformation, we've gone over them in detail. Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, glory to God alone. They express the simple pillars that I believe every church need to be, must be built upon. Every Christian must be built along. And it's my prayer that these are not just fanciful sayings that we've looked at, but that they are genuine convictions, genuine convictions for our own hearts.